Assalamu alaikum guys and welcome back to another episode of The Word Affairs. So, um, I hope you all enjoyed last week's episode. I do apologise about how short it was because when I was recording it, I already knew it was going to be short, but then when I uploaded it, I was like, damn, this is really, really short. But in all honesty, like, I was not in my zone, like, I was not in my environment, as you could tell. Um, So, that was a bit disappointing. But I hope you all still liked it. I hope you all still got a little bit out about the Reddit threads and stuff like that. Anyways, alhamdulillah, I am back. And I am sat in my room, my sanctuary, and I'm literally recording this episode, so we're going to get into it. First and foremost, I just want to say thank you to each and every single person who has ever listened to the episodes, who's ever sent me a message on Instagram or on TikTok, well, you can't send messages on TikTok, but who's shown support, because I absolutely love it. And I just, yeah, just want to say thank you so, so much for that. I don't know why, I just was feeling it on the way home from work today, because I was listening to Islamic feelings um the podcast I don't know if you guys you I mean you guys have to like you will know her a hundred percent she's called Hira she's from America and mashallah her podcast is literally it like it it's just oh it's just amazing please listen to it I, I I'm pretty sure when I'm talking about this right now you guys are like uh duh I've already listened to it because that's how amazing it is mashallah Allahumma barik. may Allah give her even more success and even more happiness but she was talking about like um how she feels so like cliche and stuff and she's like thank you guys I'm so grateful she doesn't like saying it in her latest episode at the beginning um but you know she never mentions numbers and stuff like that and I just love that about her um but yeah it just got me thinking wow it's so true like I sometimes feel a bit oh like I don't know but you know I always feel like I have to say it because genuinely like I want to and I genuinely have to express my feelings for it but yeah thank you so so much guys I literally see all the numbers all the time like she said as well um but yeah, thank you so, so much. Anyways, um, so I obviously was in Morocco last week. Well, actually not even last week. I literally came back two days ago, was it? Yeah, so I landed Thursday night, alhamdulillah. And um, yeah, best feeling ever to be in a different country, first and foremost on holiday, but that more so like it being in a Muslim country. And this is something that I can go on about for hours. And I'm not going to go on it about it for hours because I don't want to bore you guys. But um, honestly, I've, I said it in last week's episode as well. Morocco literally has my heart. Um, it's just the best country, in my opinion, as of yet, out of the countries that I've visited. And Turkey's like a close second. But Morocco, for me, is my favourite. Um, but anyways, what I absolutely loved is the whole concept of being in a Muslim country and obviously being able to freely express and being able to freely um, practice your deen. Not even just that. More so being surrounded by Muslims so many Muslims now you could you know probably be sat here like well hang on I have the same experience right here where I live anyway like some of you guys are from the UK from America from Malaysia there's literally people listening to this from Malaysia um literally Uzbekistan um France shout out to France and Germany and Australia and Canada all of you guys and Italy like I literally see all of the um you know the statistics it shocks me so much and Kenya shout out to Kenya um but yeah shout out and I'll just keep shouting out all the rest of the countries but we'll be here forever so thank you so much to all of you um but the point is that you guys or might already live in muslim communities or predominantly muslim communities you have lots of muslim friends and stuff like that i am telling you this with my hand on my heart and i do think that 
a lot of Muslims out there could probably say the same thing. It hits different when you're in a Muslim country. It hits so different. Um, but also, there's so much that you can learn from them. And there's just a different perspective because for the people who are from like America, US and Canada, obviously we live in very, very very progressive countries and it's very fast the climate that we live in this 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 environment that we live in it is so fast it's so modern it's so technological it's just so advanced it's insane right and that is a blessing and a curse in itself yeah um but when you go to a different country predominantly for example like I was talking about Morocco is the example I can give and whilst there are very very modernized parts of Morocco at the end of the day you see like Morocco for what it is you see the country and I mean just to hate Morocco out of the equation I'm talking about a lot of countries here you know Pakistan can be an example anything Turkey can be an example any country like you see a different way of life there and with a different way of life comes an entirely different mentality with different perspectives on every aspect of life right does that make sense so the aspects and sorry the perspectives rather that we have on different elements of life are heavily influenced by our environment and so people in the UK in the US in Canada etc we see life in a different lens compared to people in different countries perhaps because we are surrounded in an entirely different environment it is the it's the west right this is the west and the west has a different lens and there's so many differences between the west and the east um but this does change our perspective on life and the way we view everything be it income be it work be it marriage, be it personal life, um, be it happiness, be it sadness, you know, all of that type of stuff, we see it differently. And that's just natural. That is absolutely natural. I think that's perhaps one of the best things about traveling that, yeah, you see a country for what it is, but when you also meet their people and you see the way they live, it honestly just, it just broadens your horizon because it just really, really allows you to open your eyes and see, hang on, there's more to life than how I view it. There are different perceptions of life there are different viewpoints and so um the reason why I'm going into all of this is because today I wanted to talk about the concept of money and like income and charity and risk and all of that and the concept of it being written etc and just different perspectives on it right so obviously in the UK like I keep saying you know and in our in the west basically there is this big big rat race there's this run to make money right we are running to make money we are running to build stuff to build our empire and that might not be um something you can say for everybody but for the majority of us 100% like it is something where like you just have to keep up or else if you if you fall that's it you've lost like you've lost you're done and it comes with its own negatives to that right so um equally I guess you know you could say that about other countries as well where if you fall you're gonna literally relapse and you're gonna struggle to get back up but um one thing that I learned when I was in Morocco especially is the different perspectives people have on money and subhanallah like I'm telling you this with my hand on my heart it changed how I look at money alhamdulillah I would like to say like I think that personally wealth is not really something that is incredibly important and this is something that I I think that I would want to stress for the rest of my life. Money does not buy you happiness. Money buys you things that will give you temporary happiness. Okay, process that for a second. 
money does not buy you happiness. Money buys you things that give you temporary happiness. So for example, obviously we've all heard about, you know, those quotes where it's like, yeah, money doesn't buy you happiness, but you'd rather cry in a Ferrari than on a bike. That's true. I guess. But the point is, you buy your Ferrari, right, with the money that you got, that Ferrari is going to give you so much happiness, so much elation, so much excitement. You're going to be gassed when you get that Ferrari, right? How long is that going to last for? How long is that immense rush of adrenaline, immense rush of happiness and that dopamine and that just that excitement that hits you and runs through your veins? How long is that going to last? Because the dopamine effect is so real and it's so evident in everything we do. And so you'll be so happy to get that Ferrari, right? And then give it a month, give it two months, maybe three, maybe push it to six. Eventually, it'll just become a normal thing. Yeah, like, hey, let's get into the car. Um, You know, we need to go there. We need to go, you know, somewhere. Maybe sometimes someone will look at your car and be like, oh my God, it's so nice. Like, you know, kids might point to your car and be like, oh, he's got the best car ever. She's got the best car ever. And sometimes, yeah, like, okay, cool. Makes you, you know, smile a little bit. But that, that immense happiness you felt at the beginning, you're not going to feel it at that same level again because the dopamine effect is so, so real. So when we talk about this, what we mean is if something gives you happiness, obviously you release dopamine, right? And you're happy in that moment. You've got this dopamine rushing through your system. The dopamine hormone makes you happy, makes you giddy, etc. Um, it gives you that, you know, release. But then the next time for you to feel that happiness, you need actually a higher amount of that dopamine. Now, this is in the concept of addiction, okay? So in addiction, this is how it works. For example, um, drugs, alcohol, um, pornography, sadly, this is how it works. The dopamine rush, the dopamine um, system, right? The circuit. So for example, obviously, like I said, you're going to need a, a bigger amount of dopamine to give you the same effect because there's this whole thing about tolerance and sensitivity. You start to become desensitized and it's like, nope, we need more and more and more of it to give you the same effect. Sometimes what you'll find is maybe people who, you know, drink coffee. I drink coffee and I will hand on hand say, back when I first started drinking coffee, back when I was like high school, literally like half or like three quarters of a teaspoon would like really be like, oh, wow, this is okay. This is good enough. But then after now, I'm like, okay, I need more because it doesn't have the same effect to me. Sometimes I'll have a double shot espresso. Not even gonna lie, like I am obsessed with double shot espressos because like I genuinely need that amount to keep me going for the whole day, like to keep me running and wide awake, like wide awake and alert. But obviously that's not how it was when I was in high school or when I first started drinking coffee. So I need more of that thing to give me the same effect. Does that make sense? So when we talk about happiness and stuff like that, this is what we're talking about. And essentially you could possibly relate it to money. You might have met people in your life who are addicted to wealth, who are addicted to the concept of making money. They are just working and working and working. Now, there's two different types of working, by the way, in that sense. You've got working in the type of, um, in the sense of provision, where you have to work to provide. You have a family to feed, you have bills to pay, you have children to clothe, you have a wife to clothe, you have these commitments and these responsibilities that require money for you to fulfill them. And therefore, you're, you're, you're having to put in extra effort, you're having to put in extra hours at work or something to fulfill that. Now, that's one thing. Now, the second outlook on that is where you are actually comfortable in life. Alhamdulillah and mashallah, like, 
you're comfortable in life, you've got what you want, you know, every day-to-day life is fine, you know, there's no problems, but, you know, you, you've actually got quite a good amount of money, you've got quite a good income, etc. but, you know, it's not enough, and so you want more, and you want more and more and more, and so you start chasing it, and you start literally running after money and before you know it you're just trying to accumulate it and stuff like that and I don't even think I need to go into all of the negativities that probably come with that because I feel like you guys could probably understand that um but back to what we were saying in the sense of how money does it buy you happiness and stuff like that I don't believe money buys you happiness and the reason for that is because you're always left wanting more you're always left wanting more and more and more and it's like okay, this is not having the same effect on me, I need to get something else. And essentially, if it's, if you're always left in want, sorry, if you're always left wanting more and more, how are you happy then? Because wouldn't you be content with what you've got, right? But you're not, because you're chasing other things. So it's like a different perspective. Now, you guys, and there's probably some people out there who probably disagree with me on that, and they're like, no, like, I love money. And you know, that's another thing as well, by the way, it's not wrong to love money. Nowhere in this side is it wrong to love money. It's just that concept of how do you view it. You know, in Islam, sometimes we talk about the concept of israf and I have brought it up a few times on the podcast about waste and all of that. And it comes in so many different aspects. Even for example of israf when you're doing wuzu, right? You use too much water, you will be accountable for that on the day of judgment. You will be asked, why did you waste a lot of water? And that is something that's very hard because like, imagine that in the times of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, you know, you could, the Sahaba and the Prophet himself, like, they were making wudu with one jug of water. And it's pos- it's possible, right? Um, I saw so many people doing it in, in Morocco. Um, and it was, it was, it's actually very, very real and very possible. And it goes back to the concept of Israf because, like, you should not be wasting anything. You shouldn't be wasting the resources that are given to you by Allah on this, on this earth. Um, but it, again, you can talk about it in the sense of money as well. But, um... The whole concept of um, loving money and wanting wealth isn't necessarily bad. For example, Abu Bakr was one of the wealthiest businessmen. Um, and Khadija, she was very, very wealthy. But these people, for example, literally spent their entire wealth in the name of Islam. They did not hold it in their hearts. They held it in their hands. And as I'm saying this, you're probably thinking to yourself and you're nodding like, yes, I've heard this before. Um, But it comes back to the concept of the dunya. And this is something that we're going to talk about. And it comes back to how you view this world and how attached you are to this world. Because if you are attached to this world, you will be attached to your money. You get that? And if you're attached to money, you just want more wealth and you can't let it go and you don't like to part with it, stuff like that. But, you know, you've got different examples. And and even in Islam, it's not wrong to want money. You can ask for help, wealth, so you, you know, you can ask for that and stuff like that. But it's just like, what do you do with it? What are you doing with it? And how are you using it? And how attached are you to it? You know? Um, but it just obviously relates back to what I was saying about the concept of Muslim countries and stuff like that. So, for example, um, this is why I initially started this whole conversation because... I've got like stories for days, by the way, um, about like holiday and stuff. Like I, I'm just like, okay, you know what? I don't, I don't want to bore you guys with all of it, but um, you know, a few stood out here and there, and one of them was basically how we met this. Um, well, it's so crazy actually. Oh my god! So I have to go in. I just have to tell you guys how we met 
this taxi driver. We never met this taxi driver, by the way. Initially, we never met him. You know when you talk, oh my God, like I literally cannot get over this. You know when you talk about the concept of Qadr, right? I can I can go on about Qadr for days and days and days. The concept of Rizq, about how it's all written, about how it will find its way to you, whether it takes a year, whether it takes a week, whether it takes a decade. If it is written for you, by Allah, it will find you. Trust me, it will find you because it has been decreed by Allah to find its way to you eventually. You just don't know when. And you don't know where and you don't know how, but it will. So, for example, this was on our second day in um, on holiday in Agadir. We went to the beach and there was this man who was so amazing, but he basically was doing camels, you know, like where they basically ride camels up and down the beach, right? business is business and you know your your job is your job and that was the way he made his money and it was a halal income right and so I kind of obviously wanted to go on a camel uh, and it was amazing it was really good um and you know he approached my dad my dad is the best at haggling seriously so uh eventually you know the reduced surprise and all that type of stuff and he took me on the camel ride and then you know they just got chatting they just got talking my dad's talking to him and all of that type of stuff and they're asking us where we were from blah 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 and then they were like you know, have you booked any excursions? Have you booked this? Have you booked that? Like, when are you going to this place? When are you going to that place? And my dad was like, oh yeah, we're still looking into it and everything like that. We've already been to Morocco, so we kind of know basically how it works. Um, but anyways, he started talking to him and I cannot remember for, oh, sorry, I remember now. So he asked my dad how we are going to go to the top of the mountain in Agadir. Everybody knows this mountain. It's literally got the famous words on it, like Allah Wadan and everything that's written in Arabic on it and it lights up at night. And you can see like the entirety of like Agadir kind of thing from that. And they've got like the, um, what are those called now? The, you know, the, oh my God, how did I forget the word? You know, those things where you sit in them and it goes across, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The word will come to me later on. Cable cars, there you go, cable cars, it came to me. So, you know those cable cars? Yeah, so you can go in them and everything like this, blah, blah, blah. And so he said to my dad, like, basically we do that. We can do like, uh, you know, we can take you there and, you know, do a bit of that. And then you guys can go to the souk markets and stuff like that. So my dad was like, okay, cool. Like, who's going to take us? He was like, oh, my brother will take us. And so um, we then the next day, um, I think it was like midday or something, we sat out for that and it was just so beautiful, subhanAllah, like standing on top of the mountain, so high up and then seeing the entirety of Agadir and the beach and the water. And actually across the water is New York, which is pretty cool. Um, So yeah. And anyways, about the man who we met the second day. So this was the man's brother. Now, this is why I had to go into this long story because I wanted to tell you about the constant risk. This man then became one of our basically all-time taxi drivers. Like we'd always call him and everything like that. And we'd be like, yo, like, can you take us here? Can you take us there? Do you know anyone who could do this for us? Do you know anyone who can, you know, sort this out for us? And he was honestly an exemplary, like when I say exemplary Muslim, I mean, like, mashallah, this man was in... Oh, he was just amazing. First and foremost, he lowers his gaze. That is the biggest thing. You know, it was me, my mum and my dad. And this man never looked at us once. Nothing like that. Like, he obviously would greet us and everything like that, say salam and everything like that. But once we're in the car, like, never once did you see him, like, looking through the mirrors or anything like that. Like, we, you know, weird things that sometimes some people do. Um, We've experienced it everywhere, right? But he never did anything like that. Second of all, um, he was just 
so calm, so peaceful. He would just be like, yeah, okay, so let's get in the car. We're going to go to the supermarkets. I'll drop you guys off there. You can have an hour there and I'll come pick you up. Literally. And then he would, you know, once they decided on a rate, he would stick to that rate. Like he would literally stick to that rate for like, you know, paying for the taxi and stuff like that. Now, um, another thing was what I saw and I noticed. Sadly, in obviously Morocco and in a lot of Eastern countries, there are people who are quite poor and there are people who obviously have to ask for money. And, you know, I personally believe that well you know you always hear this thing of like oh my god they're fake or or they don't need the money or they're not actually homeless i hate that type of conversation because that is not for you to decide it nowhere did it say before you give money to someone you have to go to the nitty-gritty and figure out if they're legit or not you are going to give that person money because we were told specifically first and foremost charity does not decrease your wealth and secondly the whole aspect of being a Muslim is to help others, right? You help others. If anything, that might be a test from Allah. That might, right, that person right there asking you for money might be a test from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because he has put that person in your path for a reason to see how you are going to react to that person. How are you gonna how are you gonna react when they ask you for money? But perhaps they're wearing perfect clothes, their shoes are clean, everything like that they're fine and you could turn around and be like oh well you're not homeless you don't need the money you're a fake da, da, da. well why did anybody ask you to check no that person stood there it could be a test you never know because not only are we tested with the poor we are tested with the rich we are tested with everyone whether that person is a fake or not that's between him and Allah Allah will deal with him later on or her later on but right here right now you are being tested to see what you're going to do when someone like that approaches you are you going to give away some of your wealth are you going to give them a little bit of money right and so like this is so sad we live in a society today where we just don't do that you know, there's been times when I have literally seen in my own eyes, and I will never forget this, there was a homeless man that was sat outside a shop, and we were walking up, to, like, towards him, if that makes sense, um, and as we were walking, and he was talking to us, like, just having a chat with us, um, when we got there, basically, so as we had talking to him this car drove past and it was full of young lads and I was they were Muslims you we just know because you know it was in a local area we know them type of thing and they literally uh, swore at him they swore so loudly and they pointed at him and stuff like you're a fake you're a fake you're this you're that really really vulgar language horrific and they just basically jeered at him and stuff and then they just like sped off in their car as lads do and it was so sad because that man just sat there and you could just tell he was so tired. He was so done with this. And it, it was horrific because I literally came home and I was like, how could you do that? As a Muslim, how could you do that? It does not make sense to me. I cannot fathom that. But anyways, um, I think that in all honesty, number one, I, I don't even think this. In fact, we are told we are told that charity does not decrease your wealth. You give, Allah gives you more. Literally, that is it. The poor have a right over your money. Think of it that way. Because Allah has made them poor for a reason and he's made and given us money for a reason. Now that money that gets sent to you, it has every single way of being spent. Perhaps a portion of it is going to be spent in the way of helping the poor. Never ever ever think that you cannot help them because you can, even with a kind word, you could help them. You don't know who out there is in need of a kind word. But that is obviously like a topic for another day. Regarding to how this links to that tax driver, one thing that I noticed was that he had this little... Um, like this little compartment in his car and anytime we'd stop in traffic or we were stopped at the lights and someone came and they kind of like was asking for money through the windows he would just open his little compartment without saying a word take out a few coins and give it them and he'd nod at them right and they were like thank you very much and they'd go their way and that I'm being honest with you is so so 
it's just so beautiful when you see so many people walking past them. You see them being ignored. You see them being left alone. You see them literally being looked at weirdly. But this man, every and I mean this, guys, I literally noticed it. Every single person who'd walk past, he would give them money. And I don't even know how much money he was giving. I don't know. Like, I don't know the amount. I don't know the value. Because again, like, they were just like, you know, just quickly grab the coins and just give it them. And I found that so beautiful and so endearing. Anyways, so we asked him one time, um, is there like um, anywhere to get to Marrakesh? Like, because we wanted to go to Marrakesh for a day. And anyways, he told us that there was this coach that basically, you know, picks you up in the morning and, you know, takes you there for the day and then brings you back at night and all that type of stuff. So we went, I think it was like two or three days later um, to Marrakesh and we had to wake up super early and it was a really beautiful experience. And so the coach was state of the art, by the way, it was a state of the art coach, really, really beautiful. All of us were like tourists, foreigners and the people who basically were doing it, like the rate that they were charging was obviously a pretty like good rate like alhamdulillah like that's their income and they made a lot of money and obviously I won't really enclose them the amount of money that they made but all I'm going to say is like in terms of like English money that is a lot of money and they'd make that on a day obviously they don't go to Marrakesh every day but that when they do decide to go to Marrakesh on that coach that's how much they make and so we were like wow like this is really really good business like mashallah this is such a good way to do business in Morocco and you know whoever basically decides to buy a coach like they've done really well and you know they can actually make a really really good living for themselves not even just good but basically above average they can actually live a really cushy life so anyways um we then saw the taxi driver again in a few days time and we were talking to him and my dad actually mentioned it to him and he said oh brother like why don't you buy a coach and he was like coach and my dad explained to him like we went to Mar- you know, Marrakesh and there was this coach and it was so beautiful and you know you can earn lots and lots of money from it I swear I swear as at first obviously he didn't understand and then he understood it and then my dad was explaining like you can you know earn so much money from it and everything like that he literally turned around he shook his head he went no 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 he literally went la la and he's obviously speaking in Arabic and he's like no 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 he said less money more happy he literally he touched his heart he went less money and he went his hands more happy and basically he was like pointing to the taxi and he's like less money more happy he literally immediately rejected the idea of 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 basically leveling up and buying a coach and doing this at the other and you know earning more money this man didn't even hear the details of it all he heard was you do this you do that and then you know it, it gets you a really really good income a lot of money he was like no I don't want that. He's like, I am happy with what I have and I'm content with the little I have because the little I have gives me a lot of happiness. Literally, like subhanAllah. I cannot explain it to you guys because, you know, you must have seen it in these countries. It's not easy to live, obviously. Like, you know, if you've made it, you've made it. That's great. But it is hard every day to struggle. Like you see literally like old elderly men, you know, trying to sell like bracelets or magnets like just to earn a living do you know what I mean like that's how hard it is but this man here he was like no I'm happy with where I am alhamdulillah I do not want to move I'm good with what I've got literally and it was so beautiful honestly like I will never forget it I will never forget that for the rest of my life because subhanallah it teaches you so much it teaches you so much about money number one that was the perfect example of how you hold money in your hand and not in your heart because think about it if you hold it in your heart you want more You want more and more to satisfy yourself. This man, on the other hand, didn't. He keeps it in his hand. How? By two ways. 
One, he rejected the idea of earning more, you know, an, an above average amount because he was like, no, like what I've got, I'm happy with. And number two, any person who needed money in the form of charity, he would give them his money. Literally, he, he kept a compartment full of money, literally coins, and he would just give it to them. He did not hold his wealth in his heart. He had it in his hand. And that's not very common nowadays. That's very, very rare. Um, and on top of that, like he he literally was like just such a, a exempt like I said at the beginning, he's just an exemplary man to be honest with you. It was just so beautiful, mashallah. But anyways, what's so crazy is I then obviously have come back from Morocco and like that and I was actually at Islamic classes today and I learned something and I was like I just have to share this with everybody else because I already had the the idea that of telling you guys the story but I was like you know obviously like yeah you know it's good and blah blah but well like I'm not joking subhanallah like the stuff that I learned it just naturally like matched up and I just have to share it okay so when we talk about role models and exemplary Muslims and the people that we should be following um and taking inspiration from obviously the first person that pops into your head is the prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam we follow his sunnah we follow his ways you know he is literally our role model he is literally the the he's literally the prophet of the ummah you know what i'm saying um and you know our deen is also in it's in our deen to love the prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam one of the ways that you develop love as well especially is to learn more about him his characteristics and what he was like his habits um stuff like that you know and the word for characteristics in you know like descript- descriptive characteristics in arabic is shamail right so um in you know i i basically you know we're studying shamail and um you know the seerah of the prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam and we were you know talking about the characteristics and obviously there's so much that goes into it even to something as small as we were learning today about the names of the swords that the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam actually had, you know, there were like nine, and I think about seven. Well, apparently all nine of them are in Turkey. They've been preserved. Um, we learned about six of their names, so little things like that, right? So, anyways, um, there was something that we were learning about today, and it was the concept of the way that the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam basically dealt with when it came to stuff like food when it came to, um, you know, living and and eating and, you know, just in general. Now, obviously, if you guys who are not Muslims or if you don't know very much, you know, the Prophet Muhammad lived, you know, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam lived a very, very simple life, a very simple life. And um, they did not have a lot of money. They did not have, you know, um, a lot of riches and stuff. Now, one thing you have to understand about that is, that was not by default that was by choice and what that means is that if he wanted to he could have asked allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for any riches anything in this world but he chose not to because he didn't want everyone else to think that he was like above them or like a king he wanted to basically be a good representation for everyone and live a simple life and on top of that he said i'm a servant and i'm going to live like a servant i am the servant of allah and i'm going to live just that way now in relation to that there is this absolutely 
beautiful story that can be found in um, Tabrani Al-Mu'jam Al-Awsat, right? So this is actually something we were going through today. So I'll just read it out to you guys. And I think I don't even have to say so much why it just speaks for itself. So the Prophet was in Mecca one day and found Angel Jibra'il standing on Mount Safa. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, Jibra'il, by the one who sent you with the truth, the family of Muhammad does not even have a handful of flour or a palmful of barley to eat all day. As soon as he spoke, a thunderous noise from the heavens worried him. He asked, Has Allah ordered the end of the world? Jibra'il said, No, but he has commanded the angel Raphael to come, and after hearing your words, he has. Angel Raphael came to him and said, Verily, Allah has heard what you have said. So he sent me to you with the keys to the treasure of the earth and ordered me to offer them to you. If you wish that I turn the mountain of Tihama into emerald and rubies and gold and silver, I will do so. And if you wish, you can be a prophet as a king or a prophet as a servant. The angel Jibra'il then gestured to the Prophet to humble himself before Allah, who then said, Rather, I would prefer to be a Prophet as a servant. And honestly, subhanAllah, subhanAllah, that honestly, it just screams everything that we learn, right? Every single thing. Because think about this for a second. The Prophet Muhammad was having a conversation with the angel Jibra'il and he was saying that, you know, my family and me, like we don't even have enough enough to eat. We don't even have a handful of flour. Go, do me a favour right now and go into your kitchen and see what kind of food you can find. I guarantee you, you could probably find so much more than a handful of flour. The Prophet Muhammad at that time said he didn't even have a handful of flour. That's our Prophet. That is the Nabi of the Ummah. Right? That is the person that we follow the sunnah of. That is the person who will intercede for us on the day of judgment. Who will who will use his final dua to basically ask Allah to forgive us. Right? And he didn't even have a handful of flour. And he just said it to Angel Jibra'il. And then next thing you know, this massive thunderous noise came. And then the other angel came with the key to all of the treasures of the earth. And he literally said, you can choose to live a prophet as a king. Or as a servant. And what did Prophet Muhammad choose? Despite having lived as a servant. Despite having lived with literally nothing. He still chose that life. Just imagine. If you've literally been living in a life of, you know, um, in in poverty. And like, you know, you've not had enough to eat or anything like that. Like you literally go hungry for days. You literally have to tie stones to your stomach. Like the Prophet Muhammad used to have to do. Because the hunger was too much. So to calm down the pangs of hunger, they would they would tie stones to their stomach. Imagine you have had to do all of this. And then someone comes to you and says, listen, I can give you the treasures of this earth. I can literally turn that mountain over there into emeralds and rubies and gold and silver. I'll do it right now for you. You tell me and I'll do it. And imagine, what are you going to say? If that was me, I'd turn around and be like, yes, 100%, do it right now. Our prophet literally turned around and said, no, I want to live as a servant. And that is honestly so crazy. Just think about that for a second. Because we sometimes end up being so ungrateful of everything that we have been given. For what? Because it's not enough? Because we want more? Because it's not satisfying us? Why? Like, what, what is the reason, right? And it relates back to um, this Arabic term. 
it, it relates back to this word um zuhud. Um, and that basically means that you know you're renouncing worldly pleasures or choosing to live in a simple way in order to be near to Allah. And in fact, the Prophet and his household were expected by Allah to always give away any extra that they had in charity because of their unique spiritual status. What we mean by that is, despite the Prophet not having much um like to his name physically, like all of, you know, the wealth or any of that, all of this worldly stuff. Despite not having any of that, the prophet was the richest when it came to his soul. He was the richest when it came to his spirituality. Of course he was. He was the final messenger. He was the richest in that sense. No one could touch him in that sense. He was like, I'm going to prioritize that rather than this worldly stuff because the dunya means nothing to you, to me. And is that not how we are supposed to live anyway? We aren't supposed to be carrying this in our heart. We're supposed to be carrying it in our hand. This is a prime example of that, right? There was another incident where, and I'll read it out to you because obviously it's better to read it out than to summarise. But once Umar went to visit the Prophet who had been lying on a reed mat with his torso uncovered. When he sat up, Umar saw that the mat had left imprints on his side, which made Umar cry, for he could not bear to see his beloved prophet experiencing any sort of discomfort. When the prophet asked him why he was crying, Umar replied, O messenger of Allah, I swear by Allah that I am only crying because I know that you are dearer to Allah than kings like Caesar, and yet they enjoy the delights that they have whilst you are in this state. The Prophet ﷺ then consoled him by saying, Are you not satisfied, O Umar, with the fact that they have this world and we have the afterlife? Of course, replied Umar. That Prophet, sorry, the Prophet said, that is the way it is. Literally, like, subhanAllah, what kind of hadith does that show you? You can find that, like, it's just, it's just a beautiful story because it just goes to show you, like, the fact that the prophet literally was lying down on, on, on a reed mat and he was still saying how grateful he is and he's satisfied with the fact that this world means nothing to him. He's still content. He's still happy with that. We are not happy with what we have. And then on top of that, we, we are so, we're so greedy. We, we cannot give away our wealth in the name of charity. Like we actually just can't give it away. When we have an exemplary person here, not just any person, we have the Prophet Muhammad who taught us how to be happy in the minimal things, in the fact that he didn't even have at one point a handful of flour. And yet what do we do when we see someone who needs money? Oh, they're fake. Oh my God, I saw her. I've already given her money. She already asked me for it, you know? Oh my God, that kid over there, he's running, he's taking the money off me and now he's going to go to his friends and his friends are going to come and ask me for his money. Why do we say stuff like that? Why? Why do you hold on to it so much in your heart? And if anything, I, I always think this. It is not easy for anyone to go up to someone and ask them for money. It's not easy at all. Nobody wants to do that. You know, you see little children that should be in school. You see them with ripped clothes. You see them with hunger literally written on their faces. You see the elderly. Do you know how many elderly we saw? In, in, in Morocco and even in this country like you see people who quite frankly should not be having to do this because they deserve to live the life that we deserve as well but subhanallah Allah has made our paths cross we've we've collided for a reason perhaps this is a test from Allah to see how you're going to react when you have to give that money it's actually it's actually just insane because it, it's, it's a beautiful thing and it relates to something as well, by the way. So uh, there's a hadith where a man um, came to the Prophet Muhammad and asked him, um, 
that, you know, Ya Rasulullah, I want to be loved by Allah and I want to be loved by the people. How do I do it? What do I have to do to be loved by Allah and to also gain the love of the people around me? And he, and he wanted to basically gain the love of everyone, right? Which is, there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually a pretty good thing. And so the Prophet ﷺ basically advised him that to gain the love of, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he said, detach yourself from this dunya to become beloved to Allah. And to gain the love of the people of this world, detach yourself from what the people have or the people want. Now, what does that mean? It means that this man was being advised to not only detach himself from the dunya, you know, to gain the love of Allah, which is the, the biggest thing out of everything, but also if you want to gain the love of the people around you and, and basically the people you are surrounded by of this earth, detach yourself from what they want. Don't put yourself in the same car- car- sorry, category as what they want. What, what do people mostly want? They want status. They want beauty. They want wealth. They want fame, right? These are all... D- all things of the dunya. These are all worldly matters. The minute you distance yourself from that and the minute you no longer want to have anything to do with that, you're no longer seen as competition. This is what the Sheikh was telling us. You, you are no longer seen as 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 a com- as a competitor in the rat race. And so if you aren't seen as a competitor, you have nothing to be envied about. You have nothing to be hated for. You have nothing to have jealousy towards. You have no um, negative feelings towards you. You will just be seen as, oh yeah, like that's a really cool dude. He's a proper sound guy. Like, yeah, like he's just chill. He just lives life, you know, simple man. Like we should all be like him, you know. People say that, but they don't really do it, do they? But if you want to earn the love of them, do not associate yourself associate sorry yourself with the stuff that they want because then you will not be seen as competition and when you're not seen as competition you're not hated think about it that way just think about that for a second you know we talk about um you know people supporting you and people like helping you in life and stuff like that and this is one thing i have noticed time and time again and this is the biggest advice i could give to anyone the reason why you don't tell anyone your happiness and the reason why you should keep things private is because some people in life are happy for you until you start climbing the ladder and you're 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 on the same level as them or you're trying to get above them. And so they're fine and they'll allow you and they might even help you to climb one or two steps of that ladder as long as it's way below them. But when you start to reach their level or when you are actually doing better, alhamdulillah, than them in life and you're kind of moving a little bit up, they're going to stamp on your hands, right? Because your hands are so close to their feet. Think about it. If you're on the same level as them, you're on the on the step below them or you're on the steps above them, right? Or on the same steps as them. They're going to stamp on your feet. Sorry, they're going to stamp on your hands to get you to fall off that ladder because they don't want that. They, they're okay with seeing you at the level below them. But the minute you try to start working towards their level or a little higher, oh, no, 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 we can't have that. that. That needs to go. That's not, this isn't what we're doing today. And it's really, really sad to be honest with you. So that's why you should keep a lot of things private. And on top of that, Maybe don't want what everybody else wants because genuinely when you're different, you'll see that. And when you are like that, when you're detaching yourself for the dunya, does that not mean to let go of the status, to let go of the wealth, to let go of this? Theoretically speaking, by gaining the pleasure of Allah, right, by detaching yourself from the dunya, are you then not basically detaching yourself from what the people love as well? So is it not something that is hand in hand? right? It's just a food for thought, really. But honestly, like, it relates back to all of this, to be honest with you, the way the Prophet Muhammad lived and, and the way we should live. At the end of the day, we literally follow the sunnah. 
the, the Quran and the Sunnah. If you know you are Ahle Sunnah or you know you follow the Sunnah, that is our Nabi. Like that's literally our Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So it genuinely is really really good food for thought. And yeah, like people who hold on to their wealth, like genuinely, my sincere advice would be don't do that. Genuinely, don't do it because you will see so many more benefits from from leaving it, from not from not prioritizing it, in comparison to when you do. But honestly, that's just it's just so beautiful because you realize there's so many lessons you can take from from everywhere. So I hope that was a good enough um, conversation about risk and and money and wealth and income and charity and and examples from the life of the Prophet Muhammad I hope it kind of like all interceded and interconnected. Um, but I'm going to move on to the Reddit threads now because I feel like we had a really good chat and I really hope you guys benefit from that. If I have made any mistakes anywhere, please let me know. Message me ASAP. And yeah, like you know, you can talk to me about it. Um, but yeah, let's get into it. Okay, guys. So. This Reddit thread I have not read beforehand. I only read the um, title and I found that so emotional. I was like, oh my God, this is so sad. So I was like, I need to share it with you guys. So mum is getting married and dad is beside himself with pain. I'm a female, 21 years old, and I have never seen my dad, who's 43 years old, cry in my entire life. But last Saturday, I came home and found him scrolling through my mum, who's 40 years old, um, and my mum's friend's Instagram, looking at pictures from my mum's engagement. She's getting married next summer with a big wedding. When he saw me, it was like now I caught him having emotions. He could finally break down and he started sobbing like a child, telling me how he has always loved my mum and that he's missed her since the day she left. He told me that he never stopped thinking about her since they separated six years ago. My mum and dad met at college and they fell head over heels in love. They fell pregnant with me very soon and even if I wasn't planned, they were ecstatic and couldn't wait to meet me. They ran away before I was born. For 15 years, the love my parents had for each other was what everybody talked about, goals. I had the most amazing upbringing with two of the kindest people who showed me what love and respect was. Until my mum's best friend from childhood, Karen, with a, you know, rabbit bunny marks moved in with us after her husband cheated on her with her own sister my mum did everything to help her and her two children stand back on their feet she let her stay with us she made her her favorite foods and was a shoulder to cry on and even paid for her and her children's therapy and looked for apartments for them near us one day when karen had been living with us for two months my mum went home earlier <gasps> oh, oh my god i'm so sorry if you were wearing her, um earphones at that point but I am so shocked. Oh my God. My mum went home earlier and found her and my dad in my mum's own bed. Oh my God. That is scandalous. Oh, I can't. I actually can't. I actually can't because like, what on earth? What What are you playing at, Karen? Who do you think you are? That is so rude. Okay, anyways, let's let's carry on. That was the worst time of my life. Everything was upside down and everything I knew about love and hate was turned on its head. Mum moved out that same moment, never to return to her home again. I wanted to live with mum, but since I was 15, I couldn't really choose without putting mum in an expensive and lengthy custody battle. So I, expect, um, sorry, so I accepted to split 50-50 between my parents. A month later... Are you actually joking me? I, are you actually kidding me right now? A month later, my dad and Karen become official. Are you actually having a laugh? 
When I turned 16, I moved permanently with mum and only visited dad one to two weekends a month until him and Karen broke up two years later and I could visit him more often. So now he was in the kitchen crying and telling me how he hates himself every day for what he did. How he missed mum all the time, but then about... Oh, it's sorry. I'm so sorry. What's gone? What's gone on here? I've literally lost it, guys. I'm so sorry. How he missed mum all the time, but then about his resentment towards her too. Ah, how could you hate her? How she never gave him a chance to explain or even apologise. She just discarded him like he never existed in her life. He told me that the last time my mum ever spoke directly to him was when she caught them and said, Oh, how cliche of you two. She never talked or looked at him again. He was so angry about how she moved on so fast with a new apartment, new friends, new job, new look whilst he was stuck, not even daring to move from our home and not to lose the last traces of her. I was shocked because that's not how I remember mum after the split at all. I remember her turning into someone she never was. All her happiness and optimism gone. She cried whenever she thought nobody was watching. The weeks I didn't live with her, dinner was wine and some microwave food. She lost a lot of weight and she worked all the time. She continued for years to go to the same restaurant she and dad went on to date night every Thursday. She still remembered dad's birthday and made pancakes for breakfast. Oh my god, I'm actually... This is so heartbreaking. And on their anniversary, she went to the restaurant. They had their first date and sat alone. She slept in one of his old t-shirts that she managed to take with her every night. And she still visited my grandma's, so his, her dad's mum's, grave for her death anniversary. Just a day after not to bump into my dad. She kept her hair long because dad loved her hair. She probably didn't know I knew all of this because she tried to keep a happy facade whenever I was home. But I knew and for dad not to know how he really broke her, I felt a mixture of hurt and anger and disappointment. I don't know if I can tell my dad about mum's years after the breakup. I hate that he has the wrong idea about her being cold and unbothered. I want him to know what he has done, really done, even though he would probably hate himself more. I also want him to know that she did love him very much even after he betrayed her. Maybe he can find solace in the knowledge that she has mourned him for a long time and maybe she, maybe he should be happy for her now. At the same time, if he really didn't know any of this, maybe that was mum's wish. Maybe she wanted it to be this way. I don't know. She never was the one to shy away from feelings and being honest with how we really feel, with the exception of trying to protect her daughter. I don't know. Should I talk to dad? Should I talk to mum? Ask her permission? My mum never told anyone that she was seeing her fiancé until he proposed. Yeah, oh my god. She pulled a Muslim move over there. I think they have been seeing each other for two years. Guys, I swear every Muslim couple on TikTok and Instagram do this. I'm not joking, you know. And you know what? You know what? This is what we mean about keeping things private. Okay, this is what we meant. Anyways, that was when she cut her hair short. Ah! And I started seeing her become her old self that I missed so much again. I'm so happy for her and her guy is brilliant. They had an over-the-top engagement party last week and are planning an over-the-top wedding in June. I can't wait for her to start her new chapter. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. But... You know what? You know what? That woman is literally a queen. She is literally a role model. Hear me out. Here's why. My girl left, okay? She mourned him in private. She could not forget him. She couldn't move on. She was going to the same restaurant, wearing his old t-shirt, kept her hair long. But 
to the people on the outside, she made it out as if it never bothered her, it never fazed her. Literally, this is what we talk about as well, where we say keep your worries private, keep your happiness private, right? She did both of them. So the first time when she was heartbroken and so upset, she kept it private. No one could tell. Obviously, her daughter could tell here and there, but even then it was never out in the open. She kept it all private. And then when she found her happiness with her fiancé, Michael told everyone until he proposed, like literally how, ah, like do you understand how gassed I am right now for her, even though I don't know her, because that's literally a killer move, like that's just the best thing ever, um, but the point is, like, she kept it private until it was confirmed, until it was decided, literally, I swear I literally put something about this on my story today anyway, um, but how amazing is that, and now, on top of that, let me get to the dad, right, dad, let's listen to this, how on earth is this man gonna resent her, how's he going to feel like she discarded him, fam, you literally cheated on her, she walked in on you on cheating, and then on top of that, on top of that, if you really missed her, why did you carry on with this Karen for two years, what, what are you, like, what is this, what is this, charity work right now, what are we doing, on top of that, let's ask Karen, right, Karen, let's get on to you, Karen, you had the same thing happen to you, how on earth could you put someone else in that position, you left your house because your husband cheated on you, like, what on earth, and now what did you go and do, you did the same thing to another woman, this woman, as if the last words she ever said, to him was wow how cliche of you two oh my god that's just literal goals okay anyways i'm gonna move on to the uh comments because someone has written a juicy story in the comment section okay so you know your dad sounds just like my father-in-law he cheated on my mother-in-law with a lot of women he got caught by one woman's husband and he threatened to kill him and that's how she found out. My husband was my boyfriend at the time and she begged him to not come home because that meant because that man was dangerous and my husband looks like my father-in-law at distance and she was afraid. Anyways, she kicked him out and he begged her to take him back for months and she did. Then guess what? He did it again. Listen, we always say this, once a cheater, always a cheater. Khalas, like, it's done. He fell in love with his AP. What's AP? I don't know what AP is. He fell in love with his AP and in my birthday he said he couldn't come to lunch because he was going to work but he took his AP to their house so she could take measurements because they bought her out of the house aka kicked her out. I don't know what your AP is. My mother-in-law was broken. My husband was an adult and I remembered he got so nervous that he vomited blood that day. He hated his father for what he did. My mother-in-law found someone new not long after. She was recovering and I think he was a rebound guy but ended up being serious. They got married, the guy loves her and treats her very well. He's a grandpa to my daughter. And my father-in-law, once he discovered that she moved on, he started trying to call her. And then he became with a similar speech. Sorry, he came back with a similar speech. That she didn't fight, that she was cold and moved on too quickly. That's all rubbish. He made all the choices and he chose that. I know he's miserable and he's alone, but that is what he wanted. It's just the consequences of his actions. I saw the damage he made on my husband and my mother-in-law and he deserves everything that happens but he always makes himself the victim. My mother-in-law now sees him because of my daughter. She's amazing and strong and beautiful. She had my husband at 15 so she's still young but she's happy despite him. My husband never told this to his father but they don't have a good relationship. He just leaves everything he begins. I think this is a choice you can make to tell him or not because he's trying to rewrite history and you will resent him for that. Honestly, I just don't understand the deal with a man. Like, 
what is wrong with you? Why can you never appreciate what you've got when you've got it? And then when you lose it, it's like, oh, only now I know what I had. I know I had it so good. But like these people have to learn when it's taken away from them. And I don't get why. Why? And then when you see that person actually living and thriving and being happy, it's like, oh my God, the regret's kicking in. Like, no, 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 no. Pipe down. Keep your victim voice to yourself, please. Because we're not here for that today. Stop stamping on other people's happiness, especially when you tore them down at the beginning. You had everything you wanted. You just wanted more. Again, this is another example. You wanted more and more and more. You weren't happy with what you had right now. And so when it was taken away from you, you started to regret it because you only realised the value of it once it was gone. Well, I'm sorry, but life doesn't work that way. Once it's gone, it's gone. This is not something where you can just take back whatever you want. She gave you a chance and then you ruined it because you keep ruining things, right? So, yeah. I'm just very passionate about this type of stuff, cheating and all of that, but I know loads of people have their own opinions about it, so I don't really speak about it. But anyways, um, that is a wrap for today, guys. I feel like that last Reddit thread is going to shock a lot of people because it was honestly a very heartbreaking story, in my opinion. Um, And yeah, I'm going to leave it at that. And inshallah, next week, we will be back with another episode. And until then, take care.